Yeah. You got the Ileana thing? Yeah. We came in the second We came in the second year. And what happened was in the second year, you picked up the Iliad. You, you started over and you did the Iliad and the Odyssey. And then the people from the previous year were kind of anxious to get started. So you skipped the Enid and went into whatever the next thing was. I shouldn't have done that because it was. So it, it's, I shouldn't have done that. But. So the only thing we missed was the Enid. We've done everything else. We may just do that again for the last four or five years, however long it's been. Can we, can we start doing what? Can we start? Can we start? Yeah. Can this table in the far corner quiet down again, please? This is getting on the corner. I have to be careful. Can we start? Um, any any prayer requests? For Jen and Christian. Sorry, Doc. For Jen and Christian. I got yeah. Let's let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, um, for the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass. Um, The way it opens the vistas of your kingdom, um, help us all to give ourselves to enlarged imaginations. What else is there to say about it? To take you into us, to step into your kingdom. It's got to increase our sense of distances in space to picture your kingdom. You came for all of us and you ask us to love all, all people. To, um, give ourselves to everybody. It's our Catholic faith. Help us to do that, to be strengthened now, particularly in Lent. We are grateful um, to, go, to undergo this discipline. It's always a special time for me. I always feel um, more immediately um, my pictures of all of us climbing purgatory to, together. Um, to have any sense that we are doing this together, that I would be sharing that life with you all, and that you with Suzanne and me is a source of great gratitude for both of us, I know for me. Strengthen us in our efforts and help us to always draw closer where we stumble in our Latin disciplines. Um, let us not despair, pick up, be glad, go on. That's purgatory, that's our penance. Um, ask a special blessing for um, um, Lori Williams. She's in the hospital again. Linda has asked for prayers for her. Watch over her, protect her. Um, give her strength during whatever difficulty she'll face. And also for Linda's niece, Kathy, who's um, undergoing chemo for the second time. Um, Watch over her, um, protect her as well. Um, in both of those instances, um, um, let both women um, be strengthened in their faith by whatever weaknesses, whatever sense of helplessness they feel in their experiences. Let their turning to you um, draw them closer to you, strengthen their trust in you, whatever happens. Also ask for a special blessing on Jen and uh, what she's facing with her cancer. 
And I'd like to ask everybody's prayers for Christian, Willie, and uh, Patty's son, uh, who's uh, having problems. Watch over that young man, protect him, um, and strengthen both Willie and um, Patty. Um, they're, um, they're people of strong faith. Um, strengthen them even more. Um, we offer, <laughs> help us all to go through this Lenten period with a greater resolve, a greater spirit of humility, <coughs> doing more um, to offer ourselves to you, whatever it is you're asking of us. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. <coughs> I was going to do just one um, poem this morning, but one of the parishioners, one of the, hi Don, hi Mary, one of the parishioners um, happened to mention um, the pleasure she takes in, I guess, watching um, the Waltons. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that old TV series, but I loved it. It was, I don't know, 30 years ago, forever. And an episode in which John Boy mentions the poem, The Wind Hover, and I'm trying to put the date together. I can't remember if I'd already begun as an undergraduate at Berkeley and was just having my first experience with poetry and realizing I couldn't read it, I couldn't make sense of any of it. If it was before or after, uh, I think it was before, and something this character in the story said made me run out and look at that poem, and I thought, God, how extraordinary. Um, anyway, she mentioned it, so we did it, so I'm going to do it again here. And I think it's an appropriate poem to do, just in this sense. It's a, it's a reminder, again, of something that's, you know, central to my heart and central to what we're doing, and that is to find Christ everywhere, where we least expect to find him or where we ordinarily don't see him. And you know that I think from the beginning, because some of you have probably heard this multiple times now, um, how much of a favorite this is. Um, how many have heard the wind hover? How many recall it? Well, okay, maybe the first yeah. time for some of you, but um, I'm going to come to something on lyric and narrative in a minute, but let me just say this going into this. Uh, remember, the lyric poem is, most of all, um, it's a representation of man's interior life. It's a, it's, a, it's a representation in words of something that's invisible, okay? Um, um, our emotions are obscure. I'm trusting that everybody knows that. We don't see them very well. There's a lot hidden there. If you take Freud seriously, there's even more hidden there than, and for Freud, most of it's dark. But there's a lot there that we don't see in the unconscious. You know, for those of you who've been around for a while, that the poets have known that forever. In, in Odysseus' travel to the underground, you're going into an unconscious. That's a, that's a pre-rational, pre-conceptual world. You're entering into depths of the unconscious. Our emotions are obscure. We don't see them very well. We tend to think in terms of ideas, particularly after Descartes. And our <coughs> ideas tend to be clearer than our emotions. It's hard to get to our emotions. 
poets open that world for it. It's one of the things they do. And the lyric poet goes there directly because what he's expressing is his inner emotional hidden life. It's what's invisible to us. But remember, the lyric is also musical. And the music is meant to capture some... The word emotions. Take the E off. What that word describes is are the, emo, the motions of our souls, the movements, right? And we know that most of those, I think, or speaking, I'm speaking just for me, most of us know those emotions are chaotic, trying to get a hold of them. Um, I, I certainly feel that way a lot. C.S. Lewis once, once said, and I so identified with him when he said it, he said every time he looks inside of himself, all he finds is a riot of lusts. That's C.S. Lewis. I believe that. I, mean, I, I, I could say that of myself. Um, but even though there's a, the, the motions are chaotic, I've been claiming all along that poetry helps to order those emotions, to help us give it order. Because the nature of our soul was meant to be um, musical, harmonious, poetic. And I'm trusting everybody <coughs> knows that. Before the fall, I can't believe that, um, there was, that nothing was said that wasn't musical. Was, it had to be one with God's harmony. So whatever was said expressed this beauty, this beauty of music, some internal m motion that could only be described in terms of music. So one of the reasons we've been reading lyrics is to recover that. I mean, you know that from the beginning. I, I, I made it a point because it, it's easier to hear the harmony, the rhythm, the, the rhyming, the musical elements than when we're reading a play or a narrative. So <clears throat> the lyric is an expression of man's interiority, his inner subjective self. And it very often takes us to depths we don't often see very well. Okay? So picture this, because those of you who, who know the poem will recognize it, but if those of you who haven't, will to try to set the stage here. Picture a man walking across a field and looking up and seeing a bird. Yeah, that's all. He's seeing a bird. He watches the bird for a moment, turns around, and go back. It's his morning walk. It's dawn. Okay? The sunlight has just come up. It's just rising. And he sees this bird. Would any of us know what's going on in that man's heart? One person could look at that bird and curse the bird, genuinely curse it in an evil spirit, because he could associate that bird with the wife who just betrayed him, let's say. Yeah? We don't know the interior, right? The lyric takes us into that interior. Okay, that's what it's always done. Okay, just hold that in mind now while we do these two poems. So um, I'm doing two poems today. Um, one is by George Herbert called Jordan. Sorry. And I thought it was appropriate because um, um, we're starting Lent. This is, it's, um, it's, David, hi. Good afternoon. I wanted to read this because I was just looking for something appropriate for the season since it's Lent. This is not a Lenten poem. It, the title is Jordan. So it's about conversion. Because you know that the Jordan was the river the Jews passed over when they went into the Promised Land. So, um, 
So the poem's Jordan. It's a conversion. The river is an image of the water that one goes through as a process, as a part of this conversion experience. Remember, water's always been associated with that. Now remember, um, George Herbert was an Anglican priest. Um, every poem he wrote had to do with um, his faith with God, every single one of them. Um, we've, we've read some of his poems before, I just wanted to read one here. And remember that, uh, that Herbert is aware that most poets, when they write lyrics, are expressing their feelings for their beloved. That's the tradition. And remember, it started with the shepherds because the, the lyric poet, the, the uh, prototype of the lyric poet is the shepherd watching over his flock, singing songs. That's the ancient backstory for poetry. It's the shepherd out there singing, keeping his flock quiet. Christ is the word. He's the shepherd. Herbert would have known all that. Okay? So the shepherd is the singer tending his flock, calming them. Okay? Um, and the Jordan is the river that the Jews had to pass over to get to the Promised Land. It's, a, it's an in-between moment. It's a dying and entering into a new life. Okay? So it, um, it's not a Lenten poem, but it was close to it, so I just judged it. And remember, he knows that most poets sing about their beloved, so that Shakespeare, Dunn, will, will declare their love for their beloved. It's whatever they love. Wordsworth, it would have been nature, largely. You know, the, the movements of nature, the things in nature. But it's the poet expressing his love for another, whatever that other. So it always takes us into his, what he feels towards this thing, whatever it is. In Herbert's case, it's gone, okay? This is Jordan, Jordan 1. <clears throat> Who says that fictions only in false hair become a verse? writing these nice poems about beautiful women. And, um, is there, in truth, no beauty? Is all good structure in a winding stair? May no lines pass, except they do their duty, not to a true but painted chair. The faces we put on, the things that, that we give too much attention to externally. Is it no verse except enchanted groves and sudden arbors, shadows, coarse spun lines that we we get rapturous about things in nature. Must purling streams refresh a lover's loves? Must all be veiled while he that reads divines catching the sense it too removes? Shepherds are honest people, let them sing. Riddle who list for me and pull for prime. I envy no man's nightingale or spring. The nightingale is always an image of a poet singing the bird. You know. He envy, let those people do what they will. Let them sing their lyrics. Shepherds are honest people, let them sing. Riddle who lists for me and pull for prime. I envy no man's nightingale or spring, nor let them punish me with loss of rhyme, who plainly say, my God, my King. His subject is God, all of his poems. Um, okay, Hopkins, The Wind Hover. So remember, um, if we looked at this man walking across the street, we'd have no idea what's going on inside. This is his poem, and it's um, dedicated to Christ, to Christ our Lord, Hopkins the Windower. Now remember, because I'm, I'm not going to go over this, the dawn is the rise of the sun. 
and he associates this wind hover with the, the, the rising of the sun, the, the, the daylight. He calls the bird um, the Dauphin, which is the French term for the prince heir, the one who's going to inherit the king. So this is Christ, an image of Christ inheriting and belonging to the rise, the sunrise. It's his kingdom. He, it, he's of it. This is, so he's not just seeing a bird. He's seeing a bird in this sense, okay? Because he knows, he knows, there is nothing on earth that doesn't reveal Christ. We've lost it in a scientific world, largely, that lives in abstractions. We're removed in mental, mathematical, quantitative things. He's always, poets like this are taking us back to the concrete, the, the material, the physical, concrete thing. And he, he knows, as the scientist should, even if, even if it's at a level of abstraction, that all of this reveals, is, is, represents something more. A creator, okay, whatever it is, because God is in everything, behind everything. So, he looks at this bird in the sunlight, and he's seen um, an image of Christ, okay, and then you know what happens as you watch the birds. If you don't, just, you will hear it in a second. It's written in the Italian sonnet, eight lines, an octave, A-B-A-B, A-B-B-C, A-B-B-C, and then a sestet. Um, the octave in the traditional Italian sonnet always describes an immediate experience, just as it happened. So we're back in that concrete experience, watching a bird, whatever it is. And the sestet is a reflection on it. It shows that no matter what we experience, this is so amazing what these poets do, it's so amazing. No matter what we experience, the, the very nature of the mind is to reflect on it to think, what's the meaning? What does it mean? What's there? Because if we're left in our senses, we're no different from animals. We just, we just see these things and feel them. So the sestet is a reflection on it, to go to the meaning of it. What was there that you know, I didn't grasp when I was experiencing it. So that's the form of the, um, the poem, the wind hover, to Christ our Lord. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled on drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off forth on swing as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend. The hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind, my heart in hiding stirred for a bird the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. I'm going to read it again. You all know what onomatopoeia is. Onomatopoeia is um, a, a, a movement in the poetic lines that's meant to imitate the thing that the lines are about. So if you hear the lines, you can see Hopkins masterfully. It's like a composer. It's like listening to a Bach piece or something. Running the lines so that they give us a feel of the sweep of the bird you know, in his flight. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dappled dawn drawn falcon in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuff the big wind, 
my heart in hiding, stirred for a bird, the achieve of, the mastery of the thing. So he's just in awe seeing this. Now the reflection, okay? Brute beauty and valor and act, O air, pride, plume, here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. No wonder of it. Sheer plod makes plow down sillion shine. And blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall, gall themselves, <coughs> and gash gold vermilion. So he's saying, and remember, buckle has two words, two meanings. Um, sorry, buckle has two meanings. One of them is um, you buckle things together, right? Because he sees in the bird the, the, the bringing together brute beauty, valor, air, a pride, you know, here, buckle. And it, buckle, if you, sorry, you should have it, but you don't, don't get it. You should have it in your packet. But if you watch the lines, the lines <coughs> run on, it's going to run over. It runs over and it stops on the very first word of the next line. Poets never do that except for a reason. Because all this move, movement gathers and then suddenly stops. So that it, the, the, the motion stops at that word buckle. It's emphatic. You can't miss it because of the two meanings. One is he gathers all these things together, these various powers, the, the beauty of that bird and when he's mastering the wind for this moment, when he hangs in the wind. But buckle has a second meaning. It means collapsing. Your knees buckle. So he's seen in the bird an imitation of Christ on the cross, that at that moment of mastery, um, he completes his passion. He dies. So the most beautiful, for a Christian, the most beautiful moment in all of anything we could experience would be the crucifixion. It's grotesque and it's extraordinary, extraordinarily beautiful because he dies and gets his life there. So here he sees in what happens with this bird in the moment he masters the wind, that moment is participating in, that, in the cross. So I'll read it one last time and then let it go, okay? I'll comment on the last two lines. Brute beauty and valor and act, O air, pride, plume, here, buckle. And the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, O my chevalier. No wonder of it, sheer plod makes plowed down sillion shine. When a farmer goes over the earth, you know the earth is generally clay, gluey and dark, obscure, muddy. But as he works it, it turns into this fine cilia and gives off a glow. She so said, there's no wonder to what's going on with this bird. When a farmer labors, when, when, and, and think about the wealthy people who look down on farmers. When this farmer labors, just plowing his land, he's turning that earth into cilia and it gives off a light. No wonder of it, sheer plod makes plow down cilia shine. The labor of a farmer brings this light out of the earth. And blue bleak embers, ah my dear, fall, gall, gash themselves, fall, gall themselves, and gash gold remain. So a fire blazes. But right at that moment when the coals, when the fire reaches its pitch and the coals are about to go out, there's this luminous glow from the coal, gives off this vermilion light. It's a radiant heat. It's the beauty of the fire. So right at that moment when the fire goes out, um, is this great beauty. So he sees in the labor of a farmer and he sees in a fire Christ. So there's nothing in nature that doesn't show him, doesn't reveal him. 
Um, that's why we've been reading these poets to see if we can find them. So those are the two lyrics for this morning. I thought it would be good to go back to the wind hover just to be reminded that he's present in ordinary things. Okay. Uh, very quick review. I want to get to the, uh, the text as soon as I can here. talked about the importance of the church-state battles through the Middle Ages and into modernity um, um, and how important it is for this book. Dostoevsky announces, directly announces the theme in the opening when all the men remember meet in the monastery and have a debate over Ivan's article. The, the men are, are, are um, speaking to this question of um, which is more truthful, whether the, or what should be, whether the state should absorb the church into its own being so that it becomes totalitarian, absolute in its powers, or whether the church should absorb the state. And the argument on the part of the monks is mostly in favor of that because they know that Christ is going to come at the end of time and um, answer everything. And remember what was behind this, um, we dealt with when we did um, Dante, because remember Galatius' letter, one of the most famous documents in church history, where he says there are two swords, the two powers, the, the, uh, the uh, Caesars and God, and that came from Christ, given to God's what's God's, and given to Caesar what's Caesar. So both, both powers claim a sovereignty. That's why there were so many struggles, because so often they would overlap. I mean, the, the, the church would claim power over the state that it didn't have, and the state would claim a power over the church that it didn't have. We're, we're still in the midst of that battle. In fact, Don, Don, you want to mention what you mentioned to me last? I'm, I'm not familiar with the details, but I was so glad oh, you were talking about the vestiger yeah. and uh, the Vatican, uh, I guess, uh, signed an agreement with the Chinese government a couple few months ago, or I don't remember exactly when, but the Chinese government has uh, power to select the Chinese bishops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the Pope having a veto, supposedly. Yeah, yeah. It's one thing to select them because it gives them a power over them, but, you know, I would assume that the church wouldn't do that unless they had veto power to answer that, but that, that struggle goes on. I mean, it hasn't stopped. It's, it's with us today. Um, just to remind you of some of the important battles in that, in that period. In um, 800, Pope Leo crowns Charlemagne, so he crowned him the emperor. Um, remember in 1170, Henry um, wanted Becket murdered. We just dealt with that in Eliot's poem. <coughs> the investiture <coughs> took place in the 12th century. Um, um, the, the, um, that the writings that came out, the documents came out of that, um, took away the power of the temporal authorities, the kings, to invest bishops, priests. 
Remember that um, one of the reasons Dante hated Boniface and put him in hell is because he claimed to have powers over the temporal order that Dante believed he didn't have. Um, Philip of France um, condemned Boniface and he captures him and it's shortly after that that the um, Babylonian captivity takes place. The, the Curias move from Rome to um, France. So it's directly under the French throne for well over a half a century. Um, Calvin wanted to establish a civil religion. That's what we've got in Boston. We've got a theocracy in the opening of um, Scarlet Letter. Henry VIII asserted that um, absolute sovereignty concerning um, doctrinal matters. He was a king arbitrarily claiming that he had authority over issues of faith, morals and doctrines. And Elizabeth uh, reinforced <coughs> it with what she, I mean, what was called the uh, Elizabethan settlement, the compromise, the via media, her efforts to try to um, find a midpoint between the Catholics and the Puritans. So implicitly, the state took control of those issues. <coughs> um, and you know that our declaration, and, uh, or at least our constitution, directs, deals directly with the problems that came out of that, the disestablishment clause is the result of all the battles that had been taking place to, in England and in Europe. The one last thing I want just to remind you of, remember, in, it's, I think it's in 1265, I think that's when Dante was born. In 1265, Italy has its first burger republic, mercantile, where, where the, the mercantile image asserts itself as the governing image for a whole body. Each man is free to invest in whatever he wants. The, 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 the community, the city, is, does not owe its existence either or its loyalties to the Pope or the Emperor. It, re it represents an important moment in history because it's, it's the first example of um, a republic, a democracy, that doesn't take its bearings either from the Holy Roman Empire or the Church, the Pope. And that's the prototype of America coming forward. Um, I'm not sure that Dostoevsky would see all these things in exactly that way, but that certainly that struggle is um, a deep concern for him, and it, it, it's 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 either made explicit or implicit in the whole the whole of the book. We talked about Manipian satire, the, the main themes that um, that Europe was, or I mean Russia was Holy Mother Russia. It was a feudal peasant world a world made up largely of serfs. And, and I'm sure the more you read through this, the more you're going to feel it, even if you didn't at the beginning. Dostoevsky identifies with the common man. He will make that clear in everything that happens in this book, the serfs, the peasants. There's a dignity and a freedom and a humility that they have that those people who are aspiring to be wealthy and smart, the educated, new educated class that's suddenly been created because of what happened when Peter brought in all these influences from the West, um, that that class of people don't have, that it's the serf, the ordinary man in his humility that represents the best of Russia. Because up until this time it was Holy Mother Russia. Practically everybody was religious and free to practice their religion. They were all under an orthodox you know, way of looking at things. Peter brings in these intellectual things and suddenly, and you know it from the book, there are all these people who are striving to be better than other people, to be smart, educated. 
In fact, it's the pressure, I think, of, um, of trying to be better um, that produces this quality of, of snobbery. And the interesting thing for me, those of you who've read English novels know that, if you go back to the 18th, 19th century, you'll not find a British novel that isn't critiquing social manners. Jane Austen, Dickens, Thackeray, you name it. They're all aware that there's something false about the respectability, the mannered world. All of them are, are critiquing it. The difference between the English novel and, and the Russian is the Russian is so much more deeply religious in its critique. But you've got this sense that there's this strain of trying to keep up appearances, of, of not seeming ignorant that runs through this novel. Um, so the great theme is that these dislocations are taking place, that this um, traditional culture um, has been attacked. Um, it's changing externally, technically, and it's creating all of these psychic disorders, these struggles um, among the people and between them. We saw it in the very beginning. The Manipian satire, remember the difference between most satire is that most satire focuses on a single person. It could be Voltaire satirizing one of his characters. Manipian satire is more general. It, it has to do with a general state, a, a quality that's more pervasive um, that's being parodied. And I remember I suggested if you look at some of the titles, um, The title is Give It Away, um, book one, part one, book one, A Nice Little Family, you know, um, can't, um, Smirjikov with a, with a, Smirjikov with a guitar, um, I can't remember what's the title of that. A, a, um, a seminarist, careerist. You know, you can go through the chapters and constantly find a, a sense of irony or parody. Parody. And I suggested last time that I thought um, Fyodor um, Karamazov was the most perfect image in the entire book of Manipian satire. That he images in him. Wait, let me go back. If you so Manipian satire is satire of a culture. Think of it in terms of a fractured mirror. So that in the same way that a mirror reflects a whole world outside of it, it's mimetic, it, it imitates a world. If it's shattered, you get a, um, a fractured kind of parody, displacement of images. And that's what we've got here, a displacement of images. All of these characters seem lost. They don't know what to do, how to act. And Fyodor, I suggested, was the perfect image a central image to the whole action of the, of the novel. That in himself, he more fully represents what's going on. Trying to pretend to be educated, um, all constantly making allusions to other works, quoting so he seems smart. And you remember, I, I thought the opening scene between him and Miusov gave it away, because Miusov does everything he can to, to dissociate from Fyodor. He wants nothing to do with him. That's his way of showing how pretentious he is. He gives that much importance to externals. He, he's trying to protect his sense of respectability. 
And, and Zosimov is the one who gives it away because Zosimov says to, um, to Fyodor, don't be ashamed. So Zosimov's response could not be more different from Miosov's. Miosov is saying to everybody, um, I'm, I have nothing to do with him. I'm good. So indirectly we learn that Miosov is really preoccupied with himself, how he appears, this strain of keeping up with appearances. And Zosimov isn't. Zosimov loves. He just says, don't be ashamed. And then very truthfully he says to Fyodor, don't do these things. You know, he's not condemning, he's not shaking a finger, he's just saying, these are not good for you. So in that opening scene, I think um, Dostoevsky gives us a, a way of reading the book. This Manipian quality will run through the book. And it's, it's really interesting, <laughs> those of you who have gotten there, if, if you, you know when Mitya, Dmitri is um, uh, captured because they think he's responsible for his father's death, he constantly calls himself a buffoon constantly um, says things that remind, if you're reading, you, you won't be able to read him and not hear Fyodor in the beginning. He keeps doing things that in themselves seem stupid. I, we'll, I, we have to come to that. There's so much going on in that, that whole section. We're, we're going to, I hope we get to it next week. It, it's an extraordinary <laughs> section. You've got to read that section closely because it's a giveaway of, of almost everything good in that world and you, it's hidden. I'm not sure you'll see it. So, Does he realize that he's doing that stuff or he doesn't even see it in himself? I think he's just um, in sort of spontaneous and unconscious, Dave. He's not a very reflective person. What's going to happen in that scene? I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. <laughs> and what, what, which paragraph will work? Uh, it's, it's the whole scene. In what, it's where he gets, he runs for the money. He tries, he, he's hysterical trying to find money. Several chapters. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, it's um, book eight on Mitchell, it's the whole book eight, and then book nine. Book eight and nine, and it's really interesting to me. If you're reading the book, I mean, we know from the narrator that Alyosha is the hero. But if you're reading the book, there's very little to do with Alyosha up to that point, and suddenly Dimitri just sweeps away the narrative, he just takes it over. And in a sense, he becomes the major figure of the book. And we're going to go on to Alyosha afterwards. But during this section, Dostoevsky does things with Dmitri that to me are extraordinary. Extraordinary. Anyway, he, he calls himself a buffoon. And so much of what he does resembles Fyodor. So there it is. And remember, the, the, cup, the, the things that I wanted you to ask you to just hold in your mind when you're thinking about uh, Fyodor is he calls himself a buffoon. He acts like it. And I thought Debbie's comment weeks ago was right on. She said, if he admits it, he can get away with it. He can keep doing it. And so there's a truth element to it. Um, and remember when he leaves the monastery and then he comes back, he accuses all the monks of being hypocrites, of using the peasants, feeding on them. So there's a truth aspect to his foolishness. It's like he's taking on a persona. And my, my question to everybody last time was, if you're in the middle of radical changes in a culture, if your culture's under, it is today in America, absolute, particularly with feminism, absolute radical, dislo, the dislocations that are going on. If you're in, living in a culture in which radical changes are undertake, you know, going on, what do you do? What's right? How do you know what's right anymore? I can't be more serious about this. How do you know it's right? I mean, what do you turn to? The codes of conduct are gone. 
when the South lost the Civil War. Same thing. What do you do? The, 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 the manners of respectability, the codes of respectability aren't, aren't holding. They're not going to be sufficient. We've been seeing this in almost every work we've read. What do you do? Here's the giveaway. When, when everything in a, um, William Butler Yeats used the phrase, when the center's not holding, in one of his poems, when the center does not hold. When that center's gone, and a culture's in the midst of these radical changes, how do you know what to do to behave? If the way you've been behaving is, has been determined by the codes in which you were re respectable, you know, what do you do? Is everybody following? Let, okay, let me... <coughs> Um, because I think this is a universal condition we've been we've been doing we've been looking at everyone's done. Is there an is there ever a center that doesn't change? Just the one. Hmm? Just the one. Which? God. Christ. Christ. I'm saying that because. Because the interesting thing, when I, when I think about what Dostoevsky's doing, the only, and more than God, it's Christ because he came down and took on a human form and answered the hypocrisies, the code of manners, the old law, the law by which people lived. He answered all of that, and he didn't leave people in the dark. He made it clear. So the only way we can ever answer whatever changes are going on in a culture is by staying next to him. <coughs> Who does that in this book? Alyosha and his source? Zosima. Zosima is the, I mean he's the key for Alyosha and Zosima goes to Christ. I mean he does, he, he's the holy man of the book so he's the center and it's really interesting. One of the crises in the plot occurs when Zosimov dies because everybody expects there to be no stench as proof of his holiness and when the stench comes up all the all the monks who hated him take advantage of that to show how unholy they were so they can show how righteous they are so remember the two centers of the Manipian view that I'm holding is one the monastery when all the men meet particularly with Musev and Fyodor and the other is the monks because I read that passage where Fairpot Remember I did last week where he's the one who, who practiced this ascetic fasting? He's the one who sees devils everywhere. Um, so, and, and we have to ask when we watch him, is he nuts? Or does he see something? Well, when Zosima dies and his body gives off this stench, what we see is these monks who were so holy turn out not to be so holy after all. Because what we see is they were all motivated by pride and envy. They did not like him because he was performing miracles when they weren't. So they take advantage of the stents to show how righteous they, how bad he was, how righteous they are. So in the monk order, in the order of the monastery, in the priests, <coughs> we're seeing the same Manipian satire, a parody, a fracturing, that we saw with the men. So there's this, this Manipian spirit, this spirit of parody that runs through the thing that we have to hold on to. It's, it's, it's a way of making us aware of a center not holding, of a culture fracturing. People lost, not knowing who. Dimitri's lost. 
Ivan's lost. Um, Alyosha's lost. And he'll come to himself, but... Just a, a question, and, and I get that Zosimo is the, the center, and Alicia is looking at him, trying to help him guide Alicia to where he ultimately needs to be to get out of the monastery and yep. and minister to the to the folks to, yep. to Dostoevsky's folks. Yeah. But and I you know I don't know if I'm going to use the terminology right, but for me, Dmitri is almost the tragic hero of the story because when you get to the you know the the chapters seven eight and nine and you see what the ones Dimit we just talked about yeah the yeah. one you see what dimitri goes through in that process and we talk about you know the tragic hero is the one that goes through a, a change and ultimately something emerges that's right. better than it was right. before there's right. a, a ultimate realization whether right. it's right. the iliad or whatever yep. To me, that that happens yep. here. Yep. So I'm, it, I'm, a, I'm a little, uh, what's the word? Um, unclear. Who Dostoevsky really meant to be, the hero of, the of his story, because he's very much focused on the people, and what they're going through, at this point in time, and it's almost like Dmitri is an example of what Dostoevsky believes the people need to. To go through to get to the point where they're Alosha or, right. or ultimately right. Sosimo. Yeah, yeah it's an, let's wait on it, Fred, okay, until sure. we get there. But it's, to me, it's a really good question. Let me put it this way: just going ahead. I I'm just I'm just getting through that period now. That those so sets of chapters, and I'm overwhelmed by them. But I'm glad for your comment because I think you can say something like this. It's almost as I suggested it earlier. It's almost as if Dimitri takes over. The action that the and, and by the way, I, I don't know if you're there yet. I can't read that section without thinking. Dostoevsky could not have written that section if he had not gone through the same thing yeah, when he was. You wonder, yeah, yeah, because the the humiliation, the embarrass, the all. I don't want to get into it. Well, in fact, it was the last book that he wrote. Yeah, um, it's just hard to believe. It's it's so good. It's all. It's almost as if the Dmitri character takes Dostoevsky over, because what he does in that section is so powerful. And then he's going to return to Alyosha. And, but let's hold off on that just sure. um, to, to, till we get there. And, and, and let me just remind you this, because um, I, I don't want to lose your opening here. Um, I would agree that he, he has the qualities of a tragic character exactly as you described it. But I want to say this, this, and this is going to be odd, I'm going to get to it in a second because I want to take a minute on narrative. Um, um, we've talked about comedy and narrative, I mean tragedy in the plays that we've done. And I, I think, I'm almost sure, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I've used the word purgatorial comedy when we did Moby Dick. Yeah. Because you've got a, if you remember Moby Dick, you've got a tragic line of action in Ahab. That's an absolutely pure tragic action. But it's absorbed in the Ishmael action, which is absolutely comic. So um, lots of people, um, Look at Moby Dick as a tragic work. It's not. It's absolutely not. The form of it is comic. It's it's all told from Ishmael's point of view, but he's dealing with a tragic character. I don't think um, I don't think Alyosha or Dimitri is finally a tragic character because he finally admits his humility and goes on, you know, to suffer everything that's going to happen to him after the um, after the examination, the, the Inquisition. Um, 
but I, I've suggested from the beginning that this is a comic work. I'd, I'd narrow it down. I, it's what I would call purgatorial comedy. Hmm. Remember, it's what we saw in Dante's Purgatory. Remember, in, the, Dante's work is comic. The Infernal is comic. It's infernal comedy. Because to Dante, there is no tragedy. Really, hold on to this. I, I've said this before. There is no tragedy for Dante. Dante. Sorry, getting ahead. I'm sorry, going too fast. There is no tragedy for Dante. Because if you look at hell, nobody's there because of some great nobility. They're all there because they're stupid. Honestly, there's, there's nothing... Wait, why, why was there a tragic view of the world before Christ came in? Because what you saw in Tragic Heroes was this great nobility. But in Oedipus it's answered. Oedipus at Clonus. He's, you know, he's, he's raised. The pagans had this, it's like modern respectability, they had this great sense of how dignified man is. When you look at Dante's Inferno, you see how stupid people are. Anybody in hell isn't there because they're so dignified, they're there because they're stupid. You have to, I mean, it's a sad laugh, but it's, you know, <coughs> purgatorial comedy, or purgatory in Dante is the answer out of it until you get into paradiso, joy. You know, the quality of Dostoevsky's brothers is purgatorial comedy, and it will, it will move towards a kind of joy. <coughs> of forgiveness at the end. That's its action, its plot. But in the middle of it is this character, I think, who just absolutely takes over the narrative. Uh, um, he, in so many ways, he's so much more interesting than the Alyosha, but wait till we get there, okay? I want to go back. Can pull out your narrative circle sheet for a second if you can. You all have that sheet, it's got the narrative circle on it. Hope we've got it. Yeah, the circles. Mm -mm. Yep. I may have to borrow it from you. God. No, I had it, Doctor. When I when I went through the stuff. It's, it's this one. Do you guys have it? You know that over and over again, I've got back to this question, what kind of knowledge does literature give us? Yep. Here, look here, just for a second. Barbara? Yeah. Here, can everybody look here? In Plato's Republic, he says there are two forms of, two ways of representing an action <coughs> by artists. One is what he called <laughs> these tables on the left. What to do? Is <laughs> <laughs> this purgatory? I hope it's purgatorial comedy. <laughs> There are two forms of, two ways of representing the world. Plato says, Diegesis is um, the poet speaking in his own voice. Mimesis is, which you know means mimetic, mimesis is imitation. All, all art is a form of mimesis. Art is, that's what Aristotle said, all art is a form. So when, when you hear music being played on an oboe, 
like in the movie Departure. When you hear music, that music is an imitation of an action, some, something inward. So all action, all artists emit it. Um, Plato said there are basically two forms of representing things. One is diegetic and the other is mimetic. In diegesis, the author is speaking in his own voice. So when Homer, when Homer begins the Iliad and says, sing, muse, the anger of, of uh, Pubius' son, or sing, uh, muse, the man of many ways, the Odyssey, Homer's speaking in his own voice. We know that he's turning that voice over to Calypso. He's asking her to sing through him. Sing, muse. He's asking her to sing through him, but it's his voice. Um, so a muse is speaking through him. He's speaking in his voice. When Achilles starts to speak, when he says to Agamemnon, you swine, you non-entity, you know, you dog face, he's cussing him out. This is his king. Then um, the poet is being mimetic. He's letting the character speak in his voice, right? Okay? Is everybody? So in diegesis, we have, in a sense, um, the basis of lyric, because in lyric the poet speaks in his own voice. The wind hover, Herbert, when he's the Jordan poem, he's speaking and expressing his love. Remember when he says, um, "Let let no man complain if I take, you know, let him sing what he's going to do if I take my Lord, my God." He he's taking him to sing about. That's his song. You're following right from the lines this morning. Yes. Mm -hmm. Are you? Where's that book? Y'all remember? Refresh. <laughs> you guys are bad. Really bad. Old. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not only are you old, but you're tending towards excuses too. Getting, getting worse. Getting it's worse. It's a real excuse. It's, it's true. <laughs> here, remember here. This is the end when he said, "Shepherds are honest people. Let them sing." That is, don't complain. The shepherds sing. Riddle who list for me and pull for prime. I envy no man's nightingale, the nightingale is an image of the poet, a bird singing. Or spring, the beauty of the year when poets will celebrate, like Chaucer, you know, in the Canterbury Tale. Nor let them punish me with loss of rhyme, who plainly say, my God, my king. So he's not going to give in to all these flourishings of embellishments, or what he wants to do is, is um, celebrate, honor, love God, okay? But it's, it's him speaking, yeah, it's his own voice, okay? Okay? So the lyric tends to be, generally speaking, almost always, but uh, is an expression of the poet's feelings. It's what he feels inside, that his love of the beloved God, nature, whatever it is. But Mises is a character speaking in his own voice, so when Achilles speaks, or when Demetrius speaks, or Yvonne, in this book. And you know, you know that the language of Theodore is different from the language of um, Yvonne. They're both speaking in their own voice. I, I made that point. 
whoever this narrator is, he's good because when he represents characters, he, he's careful enough, faithful enough to represent them in their own voices. Yvonne speaks differently from Dimitri, right? Mm -hmm. So that's mimesis. Um, what's Shakespeare's Anthony and Cleopatra, Merchant of Venice, Othello? It's pure mimesis, the character speaking in his own voice, right? There's no narrator, right? There's no narrator. Drama is pure mimesis, characters are just speaking. Does anybody narrate Anthony and Cleopatra or Othello or Merchant of Venice? No. So lyric is this, pure poet speaking purely in his voice. Mimesis is characters speaking in their own voices. If you put the two together, you've got what Plato called a mixed form. Or narrative. Because in narrative, the poet is narrator. He's speaking in his own voice but he's also representing characters speaking in theirs. Right? Okay? So we're reading, and we've read a number, we've read a number of, um, who's the narrator in Scarlet Letter? Hawthorne, yeah? And we know it's Hawthorne, why? Because of the custom house, he, he makes, I mean, he makes it clear he's telling the story. Who is, who's the narrator of Brothers? Is it Dostoevsky? No. <laughs> who's the narrator? Maybe. The characters. It's that, no. No. no there's there's, <laughs> a, there's a villager that, <laughs> yeah. that sees it all. Dostoevsky's here, and he's the author, and we've got a narrator who, who is a part of this community, right? He's telling us the story about all these people. He's a character. We know from him that he belongs to the village. He seems to have ties to the monastery. And but it's so almost as if Dostoevsky is that villager. <laughs> yeah, but, but he is. What do you call that? Yeah, right, right, right. So take a look at this sheet, can you, with the, with the circles? So, so in a play, if this were a play, the narrator would be off stage, kind of, and then the characters would, like Dimitri, would have his voice and etc. Okay, exactly. okay. Joyce describes it really perfectly, and critics would. He says in in drama, the the uh, author disappears behind his work. Behind the curtain. He's just he's not there. He's not even behind the curtain. He's not there. He's written a play. It's being acted out. He's not there. He's just. But we know that the play couldn't be there if he hadn't written it. But he's not, he's not present. So, in, well, if you look at your circle, um, in, in all narrative, you've got a, a, the artist, you've got a narrator and a story. So whatever the story is gets filtered through. In drama, there's just the players. Because the poet has disappeared behind. He wrote it, he's gone. Shakespeare's not around. And people will perform Anthony and Cleopatra, but so in so here here's the where I was going. Drama, in one sense, gives us the most objective representation of the world. It is as it is. Okay, in narrator, it's being filtered through somebody. And if if that to make to underscore this point, <coughs> in 19th century novels, almost often there were epistolary novels where the stories were 
<coughs> sorry, the stories were told through people who were writing letters to each other. <coughs> sorry. But in most of them, they were omniscient or um, limited third person. I'm going to come to that in a second. <coughs> oh, goodness. One of the problems that came out of the 19th century novels was that most novels were written from an omniscient point of view, like Dickens outside. So Dickens would describe this story, and he it would be possible for him to go in and out of people. And um, one of the things that most moderns objected to was an epistemological question. How do they know? How can you get inside of a person's, you know, you're claiming too much. You can't know what goes in, inside of a person. So they did everything they could to eliminate the omniscient perspective and, and have characters tell their own stories with a limited point of view. So if you've read um, Conrad, Marlowe tells the story. We did Faulkner, if you remember the town, Chick, Ratliff, and Gavin. Everything comes through those three characters. They're characters in a novel, but they're telling the story. It's funny because if you remember the town, you get all these you know, chapters that are 5, 10, 15 pages long, and then you get one chapter that's one sentence where Ratliff said he missed it. That's it. That's the chapter and we go on. It was wonderful because you're watching these three men engage um, <coughs> Clem, Snopes, the evil and dealing with it. But <coughs> Mimesis gives us the world objectively as it is, how it appears. Diegesis goes into the interior, what's invisible that we can't see. The mixed mode narrative can do both. And that's what we've got here. Okay? Now take a look at the sheet just for a second. With the top right, you can see the omniscient. You've got um, the reader hearing from a narrator who's telling a story about all these things going on. <coughs> and to the left, you've got a first person. So the reader hears things, let's say from Huckleberry Finn. If you've read Huckleberry Finn or Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, or he's a catcher in the rye, I think is supposed to be the one of the most famous. I don't know the book, but um, central intelligence down below on the right um, is somebody who's more keenly sensitive to things and who can more accurately show things as they are. So he's more trustworthy. In the lower bottom, lower left, you've got um, um, what's called a third person limited. <coughs> if you all know Jane Austen, hold on, because I'm really, this will help you all. If you all know Jane Austen, you know her narrators tell a story from a limited third person. She, Elizabeth Bennet, she did this, Emma did this, Fanny did this, it's third person. But it's limited. We tend to get the story from the point of view of that character, like if you've read Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice or Emma, you know that even though the narrator stands outside the story so it objectively presents things, it tends to focus on a major character like Elizabeth Bennet in Pride and Prejudice. There's a reason for that. In a limited point of view, we're limited to what that person sees. And by doing that, it prepares us for the turn when it happens. Because if, you're, if you've read Pride and Prejudice, you know that Elizabeth comes to a point where she realized she thought she had the answer to everything. Darcy writes her this letter, and she realizes she had it all wrong. 
and she turns. It's, it's the peripatia, it's the turn, it's the action, it's all of Shakespeare's great plays. The peripatia, the turn. There's peripatias in here. There was peripatia in Movie Dick. Um, we go through the turn with her because we were limited to what she saw. So we undergo the same kind of experience of realizing, I didn't see that. So those are not, these are not accident. These are ways of helping us to know, to actually know things. <coughs> so just to reinforce, wait, and to underscore this. After the moderns began to write to change the point of view because they were seeing flaws in it, one, one major writer, a guy named Ford Maddox Ford, wrote a book called The Good Soldier. It was all told from the point of view of this guy who told this story about all of his relations with these things and were taken by them until the end when we realized everything he said was false. And it, 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 it underscored what we today call the unreliable narrator. Those of you who are with, you know, doing this last year when we did the women writers, you remember your, or your Dora Welty did um, Why I Live at the Post Office, the young girl's sister? It's all told from her point of view. She's complaining to her family, telling everybody how bad her family is and how wrong everybody is. And you, at some point you realize she's not, I mean, you can't trust anything she said. She moves out, of, she moves out and blames her family for everything that's going on. She doesn't see, she's the one causing all the problems. So, so it, it's introduced this complexity so that we have to question, and we know that in life. I mean, there are some times when we have to wonder whether what, how seriously, how truthful somebody is, whether they may be something they're not seeing in the way they're reporting the story. And that's going to be true here in this story. So, um, conclusion, and then I'll, I'll get to the book. So one of the things that literature does for us that no other field, no other discipline can, is that it gives us um, both worlds, inner and outer worlds, in relation to each other. We can't go into the interior of a person without learning something about the external world, Russia. And we can't look at Russia without seeing its effect on how people internalize things, what they do with them, how they relate. <coughs> So, in, so one of the special modes of knowing that, that literature offers us is this combination of inner and outer worlds. No other world can do that, no other kind of knowledge. Because most other kinds of knowledge present things objectively as they are. That doesn't include an interior way of looking at things or feelings. So narrative gives us both. It's this mixed mode, this inner outer world. It relates us, it helps us relate to a larger world both in terms of people's interiority and in terms of objectively what's there. <clears throat> well, the only comment I was going to make when you're talking about, you know, they, how, how, how reliable are they? In today's world, you have people like that. They're always the victim and they're always complainers. Yep. And, and it, you, you know when they tell you something like that, right? Yeah, except, yeah, I couldn't agree more, David. <laughs> One of the interesting things that I think we're experiencing in this age is that we become aware we become aware of that quality in news media oh. itself. I mean, you just constantly have to discern, scrutinize, um, because the medias tend to be so biased in what they're doing and, and act as if they're not, <clears throat> as if they're giving an objective report of things, so. I wonder if there was a turn in that. Mm -hmm. A turn that led to that? Yeah. I believe there was. 
Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, when Walter Cronkite used to come on, we saluted him because. Yeah. You know. I think there were biases then, but I think they were mild. I mean, you know, 75 years ago, it was a different world. Um, I mean, all, all people have biases, but I, but I think they were more neutral then. Um, okay, any questions about narrative point of view? You all know that this is being, <clears throat> Dostoevsky is not the narrator. That we've got somebody who knows these people and is putting all these things together. Okay, so... Okay. <coughs> Any questions? <coughs> what is this? Thanks. <coughs> David, check his all pass. Check his hall pass. We want to be careful of people we let in. Flyers tomorrow. Okay. <coughs> Let's go to page 230. <coughs> oh, actually, let's go. Sorry. Um, no, sorry, 215, somewhere in here. Alyosha um, uh, went to Katrina's and meets with um, Lisa um, um, and gets a, she's called for him and wrote a note to him and he's wanted to see her. I just want to briefly touch on some things before we do the, uh, to, get, uh, to get to the Grand Inquisitor, but um, <coughs> when he gets there, he, he's talking with Lisi, remember, who, who wrote a note, and the last time they saw each other, um, um, Lisa, Lisi had said for him not to take her note seriously, that, that she was just being playful with it and to ignore it. Now they're meeting again, and Alyosha is telling Lisi what happened with the captain. Remember that... Um, when he was leaving the monastery, he saw these boys attacking each other, or this group of boys attacking another boy, and was troubled by it and went up and, and the one boy who was being attacked by the gang started throwing rocks at him, and he was really troubled and didn't know what he did to deserve it. And then he learns that his brother, Dimitri, had a, humiliated um, the boy's father. Um, and Alyosha goes to the captain's house to apologize to him, and when he's leaving, he, remember, he offers him money. And the first response of the captain is over joy, I mean, because they live in poverty, so he's only too glad for the help. And then suddenly, it's as if he's exposed himself by his joy <coughs> and has to change. Gets angry. The sense of honor is, is so pervasive, it's so important for this book. For the peasants, the, the, the people who are educated don't have as strong a sense of honor, generally speaking. The captain's um, poor <coughs> and his family's in trouble, so his first response is gratitude, but then um, he's ashamed that he exposed himself so, and ashamed that he, he could be bought off. 
She refuses them and he goes off. When Alyosha comes to Lisi, he's describing to her what happened. He says in 2.15, towards the top, I made a mistake there, <coughs> but the mistake has turned out for the better. <coughs> he will say, um, he goes on to say in the next paragraph, he was glad to receive the money, but he felt embarrassed that he showed that gladness, um, particularly because he was dishonored by um, Dimitri, and he doesn't want to appear dishonored to his son. Um, in the middle of the page. <coughs> First, he was offended because he'd been too glad of the money in front of me. He hadn't concealed it from me. He'd been glad, but not overly so, if he hadn't shown it. If he'd given himself airs as others do. That is, all these defense things. If he'd done it, he could have been protected. But he was, he was openly joyful. And so he um, felt ashamed. Go down, he immediately began to hate me. He's the sort of man who feels terribly ashamed by poverty, but above all, he was offended because he accepted me too quickly as a friend and given in to me too soon. So he goes on to say that since he did that, um, everything will be okay because I'll go back and offer him the money. Because he's protected his honor, he'll take it. That's his thought. On page 216, Alyosha said in a sort of rapture, and this time he will take it. Lisa clapped her hands in joy. Ah, it's true. Ah, I suddenly understand it so terribly well. Ah, Alyosha, how do you know all that? So young, and notice how she shifts, per she's speaking to him, and then she shifts to third person. How do you know all that? So young, and he already knows what's in the soul. I could never have thought that up. They go on, going over to 217. Listen, Alexei Fyodorovich, isn't there something in all this reasoning of ours, I mean yours, no better of ours? She's beginning to feel a we between them that the two are more one, so she shifts to ours? Isn't there some contempt for him, for this wretched man, that we're examining his soul like this, as if we were looking down on him, that we have decided so certainly now that he will accept the money? I'm going to just stop for a second because this is major, and I don't want to lose the opening. Think about um, the, the middle of the book, the biography on Zosima. You know that he's going to meet this stranger who's going to tell him the story about killing a woman and an investigation that took place. Now hold on to that investigation. How well did the investigators understand what happened? Just, no, don't, just keep it in mind. Dimitri is going to be caught and he's going to be accused of killing his father. You're going to have a defense attorney and a prosecuting a prosecutor um, cross-examining him. And um, he's going to be taken to jail um, for sentencing and, and a trial. How well do they read him? That is, how well, how capable is the human person of reading the human soul? It was a major theme of Scarlet Letter. It's a major theme here. It's been a major theme everywhere. It was a major theme of Hamlet when Hamlet, when Polonius said, I can get to the center of that man's soul. I can remember saying to you, this is the beginning of modernity, particularly with psychology. We think with psychology or sciences that we can get to the depth of a soul. Now remember the opening. The whole opening, um, the issue between church and state was not just church and state. It was, dealing with, it was dealing with sin. This is the central issue of the book, dealing with sin. When a person commits a crime, how do you, how does he, what's the word, um, when you, when you, perpetuate? You know, when you correct yourself, when you, correct yourself. 
when a person is rehabilitated. Sorry. How do you rehabilitate a sinner? And remember, the argument in that opening thing was the state can't do it because when a, when a person keeps committing a crime, he can go to jail, punishment, whips, not going to do it. Yvonne's argument, and so is the priest, was it's only when the state becomes the church, the church absorbs the state into itself, that it'll have the power to excommunicate somebody to make it clear how dangerous, the danger he's in. Because the assumption is, and here's, this goes back to Scarlet Letter, it goes back to the conflict between science and Christianity. We've been looking, Chillingworth and Dimsdale's argument, remember? Only God can take away a sin, can forgive a sin. <coughs> so be aware of all the investigations that go on in this book, because the assumption is that reason can get to the soul of a man and understand it. It's on that basis that all this stuff is going to go on with Dimitri when these examiners do what they do with him. And it's implicit here. No better of ours, isn't there some contempt for him for this wretched man that we're examining his soul like this, as if we were looking down on him, that we've decided so certainly now that he will accept the money? No, Lisi, there is no contempt in it, he says. I thought it over myself on the way here. Consider what contempt can there be if we ourselves are just the same as he is. If everyone is just the same as he is, because we are just the same, not better. And if we were better, we would still be the same, in the same place. I don't know about you, Lisi, but for myself, I consider that my soul is pretty and is petty in many ways. Remember, he said repeatedly, he's a, he's a Kermeza. And remember Hawthorne, Hawthorne's belief, and Melville's, what made it possible for them to write the book they did is because they, they took as the fundamental principle defining our human nature is this brotherhood of sin. It was the Puritans in America who thought that they were without, or saved, that made it capable, made it, made it possible for them to look down on others. That was the whole drama in Scarlet Letter. So Dostoevsky keeps coming back to this influence of West, the reason in the West and the importance Westerners give it, and in some ways the presumption. And now watch it, because we've seen people use reason, manners, to hide the striving for um, keeping up appearances, you know, to, to, to use reason to present this facade. And over and over again, what's going on in the book to expose it, that underneath that facade are these deep, deep dislocations, problems. And, okay. You were talking about when they were discussing this, whether the state or the church should be in charge. In that conversation, didn't conscience Conscience come up that the, the, the uh, so right. I mean, if it's I thought they said only a man's conscience can. Well, it was it was central because what they were dealing with right. is is if you reform can't take place unless a person unless a person comes to terms with his guilt and admits it or you know and so long as this this the the approaches punishment or something it won't do. Um, and the, the, the reason they made the argument they did is because they ultimately they believed that only God could take away sin. So only if the church took over that power would it be able to help because it, it could excommunicate and appeal to a person's conscience, they would you know, believe. Um, so unless the person reaches that point, it's not going to happen. 
Let me not, I, I want to be careful not to go into a theory of our own right now. I want to oh, just, okay. uh, the, that's, that was their concern there. Right now, I'm just, it's interesting. I want to, this is such an important thing. Lisi right now is indirectly re reason. Should we be looking into the soul of a man? Because she's saying, isn't it, isn't it presumptuous um, that we're examining the soul that a person, you know, can do? By the way, stop and think about the importance of it. Because after Freud, I mean, I, it's just impossible for me to look back at that generation without thinking, you couldn't go into a marriage without each of the ones saying, you're doing this, you're doing this, you're doing this, this, you know, that you've got an analysis, a, a psychological structure that makes it possible for you to look at the human being now and get to the center of his soul. We're all perverse. We have these sexual perversities. We all have Oedipus complexes. We want to marry our mothers and kill our fathers. And, you know, I mean, it just, it, it establishes a way of making it easier to think you can really get to the depths of another person's soul. Dostoevsky would say, I think, I think, rightly, you can't know the depths of another soul except through love. It gives you a different kind of knowing, um, and that means time. I mean, who can know? Who can know somebody in an overnight, or six months, or a year or two? I mean, it, I'm assuming most of us who, you know, been married for a while know that you still reach a point in your, where there's still much more to be known in the person you love. So, but. Not to get us off on a, another wild tangent, but I was listening to a radio show a couple of weeks ago. It's a doctor sports medicine show, and they were talking about the fact that the British Health Service has passed a new rule that allows doctors to withhold care from people they perceive to be racist or sexist. What? Oh, Christ. Wow, wow. God damn. God, it makes me just. We are so much more Puritan than the Puritans ever were. I mean, the, at what, what, here, this, this is where Dostoevsky is going. Actually, it's really um, good. This is where Dostoevsky is going. What he's showing is all of these people who have come from the West who use reason the way they do to put on these hairs, to keep up appearances, the strain that they make, puts them out of touch with people. They, they do not know, and they think they do. That's what makes them so bad. What Dostoevsky is showing in this book is, and Hawthorne did the same thing. It's only the people who know they're in sin who can, be, who can learn to begin to love another person. So long as you think you're above them or you're better than them, your own pride is going to be a wall. It's going to keep you from loving another person. It's where the whole Dimitri action is going to, I mean, it's just wonderful to watch what goes on with that. But you see that in spades there. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, let's wait. Just But here, Lisi's touching on it, you know, and, and Alyosha's answering. He's saying, no, because he knows, he's, he says, I'm petty. It's only when we think we're better than somebody else. And so you've got all these people educated who think they know the human soul, who are going to make these decisions about whether to withhold or not on the basis of their judgment of whether somebody's racist. Because the assumption is, what's the... If the person were pure, he wouldn't need to be there for help in the first place. So the fact that they're going there means there's something wrong with them and they're going to withhold medication because he might be racist or something? My God. You're supposed to go there because you know that there's, you need help. Anyway, sorry. I don't want to go there. God, it's too late. <laughs> I mean, is there anything more insane about the modern world than the way we use reason? It's stunning to me. It's stunning to me. Anyway, Dostoevsky's dealing with that up front. It's one of the major things of the... Here, I wanted, to, I wanted to go here before we got to Yvonne. 
um, middle of 218. <clears throat> now remember, she's done everything she can to make it clear to him that what she said in his letter was not true. He's kept the letter with her, him, because he believes it was. He knows that what she said was real. Um, at the top of the page, I wish you would always like me, but I don't know how to do it, he said. Alyosha, dear, you are cold and impudent. Um, um, she, was, she was just admitting that she was serious in his letter, and he says he knew it all along. And the fact that he says that to her makes her twitch a little bit. Let me leave it that way. Alyosha, dear, you, you are cold and impudent. Just look at him. He was so good to, as to choose me for his... Uh, he was so good to do this and left it at that. He was quite sure I wrote to him seriously. How nice. It's impudent. That is, it's like he's condescending, you know. Um, so she's... But notice that she's doing it in fun right now. Uh, and she's using third person. Why is it bad that I was sure, Alyosha said in the lamp. Ah, Alyosha, on the contrary, it's terribly good. What is this now? What are you doing? Lisa cried. Alyosha was quite lost. He wants to kiss her and he says, let's wait. Well, Alyosha, we must put off kissing because neither of us knows how to do it yet and we shall have a long time to wait, she ended suddenly. You'd better tell me why you're taking me, such a fool, such a sick little fool, and you so intelligent, so intellectual, so observant. Ah, Alyosha, I'm terribly happy because I'm not worthy of you at all. He tells her that she is worthy and that she wouldn't have done what she did a minute ago she didn't have the soul of a martyr. So the two of them are opening up. Now, let me just stop here, and you know that shortly after this, he, he once again, on the bottom of 220, he says, I only know that I am myself a Karamazov. Um, he's got to go back into the world. They betrothed themselves to each other, knowing that they probably won't be able to consummate it for a time, a year, whatever. But What's happening between the two of them now, just before we go to Yvonne and Samaritan She, every time before, she would tease him and act like she didn't care about him. Then she writes this note, and then she wants to take it back, and then says to him, I wasn't serious. And she even says that here, opening, and then finally says, she was serious, and he says, I know it. And then she's a little bit offended because it's as if he's superior to her, and he knew it, and she doesn't like being uncovered, but what's going on between this couple here? It's a touching scene. Getting to know one another? Flesh that out. Cow. If you look at all if you look at all the if you well there's a certain spirit. If you look at all the relationships, Dmitri with Katrina, with Grushenka, Ivan with Katrina, they're pretty passionate and fiery. There's a real pride, genuine pride in the way of couples. There was here. She she didn't want to admit that she cared for him. They they've moved beyond the superficial exchanges and have gotten to the point where there's true honesty between them on how they feel about each other. Yep. I I think I think what's really and it's gonna it's gonna appear everywhere, particularly with Dmitri and Grushenka. But um, I think the beauty of this passage is. Um, they both allowed themselves to be vulnerable to the other. What, what defines people in their pride, their intellectual, mostly spiritual, intellectual pride, it's a spiritual arrogance, that, a wall, 
is that that pride keeps another off because you're protecting yourself. Because Dimitri makes this clear early in the, in the book when he when he meets Katrina, remember, and he's going to offer the, her the money and, and propose to her the the next or yeah, off, yeah, offer her the money and then propose to her the next day. And suddenly he imagines himself going to her and her treating him like a dog. And it's the thought that he would offer his love and that that love would be rejected that chases him away. What's the problem with saying, I love you to a person? Yeah, absolutely. Not, yeah, not being left back. Because to say that makes you vulnerable. What's going on here is the two of them are getting past their pride. They're face saving. They're having to say, to seem better than they are. And both of them have admitted they're not worthy. She says, I'm not worthy of you. He, he says, you're a martyr. I'm not. What, what, what makes it possible for the two of them now to move together is they've gotten past their facing, their, their pride, and the way they hide behind it. So here early on, we're, watch, we're being given an example of a, of a romantic relationship between a man and a woman and what becomes possible because of the way they open to each other. So we've got that behind us now. I mean, you know, looking forward because of, we don't know what's going to happen with um, Dimitri and Katrina or Kruzhenko, Kruzhenka, or with Ivan and Katrina. But right now, Lisa, Lisi and Alyosha have betrothed themselves. I just want to just touch on the next chapter, um, Smirjakov with the guitar. T turn in the middle of 226. <clears throat> um, Dimitri is um, wanting to go No, sorry, Alyosha wanted to meet his brother, Dimitri, and he's on his way there, and he suddenly hears these musical tones and hides behind a, a, a bush, and then on 226 he sees it's Smerdjikov, middle of the page. It was indeed Smerdjikov, dressed up, pomaded, pomaded perhaps even curled in patent leather shoes, the guitar lady. So he's serenading a woman, his hair is greased, and it's laid back in the, in the fashion. Um, he's serenading her. She <coughs> says on page 224, um, you're so smart about everything. How did you ever amount to all that? The female voice was growing more and more caressing. I could have done even better, miss, and I know a lot more if it wasn't for my destiny ever since childhood. I'd have killed a man in a duel with a pistol for calling me lowborn, because remember, he's, we assume that he's the product of Theodore raping Lizaveta, stinking Lizaveta. And it's left him with this stigma, and you can imagine how much worse it is in a society in which everybody's trying to raise themselves. Top of 225, can a Russian peasant have feelings comparable to an educated man? With such lack of education, he can't have any feelings at all. Ever since my childhood, whenever I hear this wee bit, I want to throw myself at the well. Now, remember this wee bit, because it's going to come up with Dmitri when he's examined. 
Ever since my childhood, whenever I hear this wee bit, with such a lack of education, he can't have any feelings at all. Whenever I hear this wee bit, I want to throw myself at the wall. I hate all of Russia, he says to her. Um, but there's no need at all, miss. In the year 12, there was a great invasion by the Emperor Napoleon, the first, the father, the, the present one. It would have been good if we'd been subjected then by the same Frenchman. An intelligent nation would have subjected a very stupid one, miss, and joined. That is, he's looking back to all these European influences and condemning Russia because it's so backwards. Because you know French would have been the center of intellectual culture in Europe. Um, why, as if um, there's so much better than ours? I would trade a certain gal that I know for three of the youngest Englishmen, she says. Folks have their preferences, miss, and you yourself are just like a foreigner, just like a real noble foreigner. I'll tell you so for all that blushing. He says, when it comes to depravity, the, the wealthier just as bad. But she's, she sees him as if he's the product of a foreign culture, like he's French. So he's done everything he can to dissociate himself from this culture. He doesn't want to be identified with the folks, um, and yet he can't escape it because of his birth. Um, he talks about what he'd do in a duel, and she says at the bottom, 225, I think duels are so nice, Maria suddenly remarked. How so, miss? It's scary and brave, especially when five young officers with pistol in their hands are shooting each other because of some lady friend. Just like a picture. Oh, if they could only let girls watch it. She's so much like, I don't know what to call it, women who follow the tabloids, groupies, you know, who, who identify, who, who romanticize a culture and identify their whole life with a romance, an image. And, and she's doing it on the basis of what he says about duels, you know, what he would do. He's living in a fictional world. The last thing he would do would face a duel. I mean, Dimitri would, but, but not Smirchkov. So we've got an image of, um, in Smerdyakov, of everything dangerous to Russia at this point, of a man trying to live up to appearances, um, living, and he's like Parolis in uh, Much Ado, if, if you remember, or I mean, all's well. All words, all appearances. Um, um, now, I want to just quickly touch on um, Dim um, Dimitri, or, um, Dimitri goes on and meets Ivan at the tavern <coughs> and it's the first time the men have ever had a chance to really get to know each other and it's here we learn and this is Alicia right huh? Alicia and sorry yeah um, yeah it's the first it's about 38 it's the first time the men have had a chance to get to know each other, and, but in some ways, more importantly, Yvonne, because Yvonne does almost all the talking. And I, I want to just underscore that. We learn here how, how central it is to his character, how sensitive he is to suffering, the sensitivity he brings to suffering. It's just so important to see that here. Um, he, he makes it clear to Alyosha that he loves God, he believes in God, he just does not accept his creation because there's too much evil. So the position he's taking is Job's. How could a good God create something so horrible? So that's his quandary on page 238. 
he's talking about the awful things that humans do to each other. He says, by the way, a Bulgarian I met recently in Moscow um, told me how the Turks and uh, Circassians here in Bulgaria have been committing atrocities everywhere, fearing a general uprising in the Slavs. They burn, kill, rape women and children. They nail prisoners by their ears to fences and leave them like that until morning, and in the morning they hang them, so on. It's impossible to imagine all. And did people speak sometimes about the animal cruelty of man? But that is, I just think this is so true. That is terribly unjust and offensive to animals. No animal could ever be so cruel as man, so artfully, so artistically cruel. Go down. These Turks, among other things, have also taken a delight in torturing children, starting with cutting them out of their mother's wombs with a dagger, and ending with tossing nursing infants up in the air and catching them on their bayonets before their mother's eyes. The main delight comes from doing it before their mother's eyes. But here's a picture that I found very interesting. Imagine a nursing infant in the arms of its trembling mother surrounded by Turks. They've thought up an amusing trick. They fondle a baby. They laugh to make it laugh, like they're not going to do anything. Okay? That, that increases the joy, the pleasure they take in what they're doing. They make it laugh. They succeed. The baby laughs. At that moment, a Turk aims his pistol at it. Four inches from his face, the baby laughs gleefully, reaches out its little hands innocently, grabs the pistol, and suddenly the artist, the artist pulls the trigger right in its face and shatters its little head. Artistic, isn't it? the way they say the Turks. So these are Islamic believers, I think, generally. <coughs> then he goes um, to a particular example recently from Geneva that I'm assuming is Calvinistic, Christian. Okay. I have a lovely pam tam pamphlet translated from the French telling of how quite recently, only five years ago, at Geneva, a villain and a murderer named Richard was executed. They go into his past. Um, Go down on the contrary, by the time he was seven, they were already sending him out to tend the flocks in the cold and wet, with almost no clothes and almost nothing to eat. And of course, none of them stopped to think or repent of doing so. On the contrary, they considered themselves entirely within their rights, for Richard had been presented to them as an object, not as a person, a subject. Richard himself testified in those years, like a prodigal son, he wanted terribly to eat. Go, to, go over the next page of the top. The savage began earning money as a day laborer in Geneva, spent his earnings on drink, lived like a monster, and ended by killing some old man and robbing him. He was caught, tried, and condemned to death. Go down. He repented. He wrote to the court himself, saying that he was a monster, that he at last had been deemed worthy of being illumined by the Lord and receiving grace. All of Geneva was stirred. All, all of pious and philanthrop philanthropic Geneva all that was lofty and well-bred rushed to him in prison. Richard was kissed, embraced. You are a brother. Go down. Yes, grace has descended upon me before. Throughout my childhood and youth, I was glad to eat swine's food, and now grace has descended on me. I am dying in the Lord. Yes, yes, Richard, die in the Lord. You have shed blood. Go down. This is the best day of my life. I am going to the Lord. Yes, cried the pastors, the judges, the philanthropic, philanthropic ladies. This is your happiest day, for you're going to the Lord. And so I'm moving towards the scaffold in carriages and on foot following the cart of shame that is bearing Richard. They arrive at the scaffold, die, brother, they call out to Richard, die, and the Lord for grace has descended upon you too. So covered with the kisses of his brother, brother Richard is dragged onto the scaffold, laid down on the gullet, and his head is whacked off, brotherly fashion. I hope you can hear the parody here, that's uh, brotherly fashion. 
for as much as grace has descended upon him too. No, it's quite typical. The little pamphlet was translated into Russia by some Russian Luther, Lutheranizing philanthropist. This is not the first time he's called out Luther. And I think the reason for singling him out, giving him importance here, is because the whole question of miracles and the miraculous and the sacramental is central to this book. And he sees that one, it's one of the things that Dostoevsky sees has done the greatest harm to the Russian culture is to take the sacraments and the miraculous away. So what he's watching is a kind of rationalizing of Christianity. So we get the Turks first and then we get the Christians. Um, and you know that um, his great suffering stems from the fact that he, um, he, he thinks that the, the worst cruelty that humans do is to children. The children are innocent and that makes the crimes of humans that much worse. So the focus here, 242, all of it, um, is on the children. I'm at the bottom of the page. <clears throat> in the darkest days of surfing, back at the beginning of the century, and long lived the liberator of the people, there was a general. He had a dog, um, this large estate, and servants. And one day he found, came across his dog, who was limping because there was a sore in his toe. And he discovers that a little boy had thrown the stone, stone and wounded his dog. Um, bottom of 242. Why is my favorite dog limping? It was reported to him this boy had thrown the stone. So um, um, the boys let out, a few lines down, of the lockup, a gloomy, cold, misty autumn day, a great day for hunting. The general orders them to undress the boy. The child is stripped naked. He shivers. He's crazy with fear. He doesn't dare make a peep. Drive him, the general commands. The huntsmen shout. Run, run, the boy runs. Sick him, screams the general, and looses the whole pack of wolfhounds on him. He hunted him down before his mother's eyes, and the dogs tore the child to pieces. I believe the general was later declared incompetent to administer his state. Well, what to do with him? Shoot him? Shoot him for our moral satisfaction? Speak, Alyosha. Alyosha, with a spirit of resignation, says shoot him. I mean, it's such a horrendous crime. Then Ivan asked Alyosha, if you could be an architect and construct a culture on your own, and it only required that you kill one kid, one child, could you do it? And um, Alyosha says he could not. Um, and um, on page 245, this exchange between the brothers ends with Alyosha and this passionate outburst saying, um, middle of the page, I do not finally want the mother to embrace the tormentor who let his dog stare. No, she dare not forgive him. Let her forgive him for herself if she wants to. Let her forgive the tormentor, her immeasurable maternal suffering. But she has no right to forgive the suffering of her child who was torn to pieces. She dare not forgive the tormentor. This leads to Alyosha's question of Christ, who is innocent, suffering for everybody. And it's at this point that the, um, that the um, exchange between them shift. Um, because um, Ivan is going to tell him the story of the Grand Inquisitor. So, um, hold on. I just I just want to put out the Grand Inquisitor, and then we'll stop for today. But I, I'd like to start here and then go into the Zosima story when we meet next time. Um, Ivan has just laid out very graphically the the awful things that humans do to each other, um, and the presence of sin, and he's. He's underscored it 
um, by focusing on children because children are so much more helpless than adults. What happens to them usually happens because adults are over, are, are older and stronger than they are. So that's the general context. The other is, it's really clear from his presentation here that as people become more wealthy, they tend to, and, and remember the disparities in the surf culture, because you had this um, <coughs> noble class and the landed class and then the serfs, and the, largely, the country is made up largely of serfs. For the most part, these, the divisions were probably sharper there than they were in England because there was a sense of holiness to things. So when the, when the wealthy class um, would mistreat their servants, they would do it more viciously. Um, and he uses the word here, object. I mean, they didn't see human beings as human beings. The whole revolution from the 19th century forward has been in that direction, to see that all of us are humans to get rid of those class distinctions because when you're born into a noble class and you're wealthy, you tend to look down on people. So that's a major element of all that he's been doing here, the, the way in which people mistreat each other because of their religious beliefs or their prosperity, their wealth. And he leaves it there, but Alyosha raises the question of Christ, and it's then that they go to Ivan's story about the Grand Inquisitor. And let me just give you the three the three um, temptations and leave you and then ask you some questions that I'd like to pick up when we meet. Remember the first, Christ begins the ministry, this is in, in Matthew and Luke, he begins his ministry with the three temptations, the, the devil takes him to the desert and tempts him. In the first one, remember Christ has been fasting for 40 days and he's hungry and the devil says, um, turn, you have the power, turn these stones into bread. And Christ quotes God saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That our physical existence is important, but it's our spiritual life, whatever we do inwardly is more important. Um, in the second temptation, he takes him to the um, temple. They're, they're different. The, the, the second and third Temptations reversed in the two gospel readings. <clears throat> Takes him to the temple and says, throw yourself off because the angels will rescue you. And um, Christ says, you don't tempt the Lord your God. And he refuses the second temptation. In the last one, the devil takes him up high on a mountain or high into the sky and says, look down on all the earth. I'll give you um, lordship over all of it. You can rule it all if you serve me. And then the, um, Christ quotes God again saying, um, you shall serve no other gods but me. Now, it's a long chapter and it's dense. It's very dense, I think. Um, but I want to go over it next week to start our class. And I, I, we're not going to take a lot of time on it. I want to get on to uh, the Zosima story. But here's my question. Two questions, actually. Um, what do the temptations show us about ourselves? What What is Alyosha, or I'm sorry, Ivan, in the in the way that he reads them, teach us about ourselves? And why did Christ do what he did? That's one. Okay, that's important. What, what Christ begins his ministry with those temptations. What is he facing? And and what is the fact that he's got to deal with, uh, with the beginning, Ali, or Ivan says, 
not if you gathered all the most brilliant men in the world together could you ever come up with those temptations because they answer everything there is to know. So what do we learn about ourselves from those temptations? What do we learn about Christ? That's the first. The second is, what do we learn about Rome? Because according to um, Yvonne's presentation of the story, it takes place in Seville during the Inquisition when the church is killing heretics um, the day before they executed almost 100 heretics. So this is his presentation of the Catholic Church. Okay? So what, what, wh why, does, why does he see the Catholic Church that way? Where does he see Calvin and Luther? The Reformation's already taken place. He's aware of it. He's aware of Geneva and Luther. So those are two questions I'd like to not deal with today, but wait once. So is that clear? What do the temptations show us about ourselves? What is, our, what is Yvonne's story show us about that? And two, why does he see the Catholic Church the way he does? Okay. I'd like to start there and then go on to Zosimon next book. Jacob? I have a Latin question. Um, the, um, when the elder dies and there's the stench of corruption, when the monks turn on him, their evidence against him almost exclusively is he likes candies or he likes uh, jellies. You just read the passage about the Turks killing the baby, and it's a horrific story. But then he says, by the way, the Turks are very fond of sweets. sweets. You know, equating sweets with the murdering of babies. And then every time Dimitri goes off <coughs> to the other town, there's all this about the chocolates yes. and the candies. Sweets, yes. You know, liquor and candies, candies. Yeah. What's with Dostoevsky and the candies and the chocolate? Obviously, they symbolize sin and corruption, but He's into the whole candy thing. Instead of making it so abstract, how would you answer it? I mean, get out. I mean, just in a more immediate, temporal, earthly way, what would your answer be? Well, to me, it, it, he also alcohol runs through, and who drinks and who doesn't drink, or how much? Yeah, or how much is uh, between the candy and the alcohol? Those are the two basic earthly pleasures that some characters get yeah. and others don't. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, um, Fairbot makes such a thing, he's so ascetic in his fasting, he just eats a little bit of bread and that's all. He condemns the other monks because they don't fast as hard as he does. So his measure of righteousness and spiritual purity is how well somebody fasts from the world. I, I mean, to me it's abstract, sin is so abstract to me, it's just they, they don't represent anything. They, they are those l little pleasures you know, that we get so attached to that it's easy to, it's not like adultery or murder. We can get so attached to them and by, by getting attached to them, we get attached to the flesh, to the world. We don't restrain ourselves and Fairplant's answering that. Um, I'm not sure what to say. I, I thought, I mean, I thought you're connecting the walls really good because it's there. there. One of the things I want to say in a, I just, I, just remember this as you read ahead. The, we're going to look at um, the Zosima story next week, and I hope we can start the Dimitri story because I really want to get there. But just know this. Everything in the novel is going to turn after the father's killed. And the, the Bacchanal, 
the reveries, the orgy, whatever you want to call what takes place at that tavern, is essential to everything that takes place. And all, I mean, all I can say about, well, here, let me put, Lent starts for us with Mardi Gras. It, it's a moment where, remember I talked about the carnival aspect of Dostoevsky? That in Dostoevsky, that what this, this Manipian quality has a carnival aspect, that things get turned upside down. The people, in, in Mardi Gras, all the people in authority are supposed to step down, and those people who don't have any authority are supposed to, that, that was rampant in Russia. I mean, that would have been Mardi Gras Day. In Mardi Gras Day, people cut loose. They get drunk. They, they eat and drink, and and it's 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 um, what to call it. It's sanctioned. It's supported. There's a recognition that there's some good in that. So just be aware that that when we get to Dimitri at the tavern, all that's going to take place. It's going to have a Mardi Gras, a carnivalesque atmosphere. The people are going to drink themselves under the table. They're going to be eating chocolates and sweets and um, dancers and music. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, like an Irish wake. I mean, it's pretty dark. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I mean, I know that six. Except that you know, those are all pleasures that people can easily um, underestimate the value of because they seem to be so small, but. <coughs> We, we, I mean, I, now I'm going to speak for, I mean, those are the things I gave up for Lent. Last night was a really hard night for me. <laughs> Drinking in orgies? I mean. <laughs> Dismissed. <laughs> Dismissed. <laughs> God, you guys. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Wow is what I say too. Well, I know. <laughs> okay. Good idea. You gotta get to the bottom before you can go up. See, I don't think that's the bottom. I think that's a that's that's a that's a glorious